So when you call the police, you call 911, you get the basic information, but we don't train people to really get enough. It's the, the get the information in and then try to get it out through a radio system to the police officers and how the police officers respond, say, with a man with a knife. Siren, lights, loud vocal commands, guns to a person who's in crisis, and then you've got these two worlds that are colliding. Welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, a podcast about working. That is, the occupations that people pursue or simply fall into, as many of us do, and how work brings them dignity along with cash. We will visit with real people and learn how working has been important in their lives. After talking to literally thousands of potential and actual clients, Over the last three decades, I have learned firsthand how people find dignity in what they do, regardless of the type of job they do, because work allows them to have meaning, to help provide cash for their families, for themselves. And so, this podcast focuses on people who work for a living, how that work affects them, and what lessons they have learned. This episode is sponsored by the law firm of Freaking Myers and Rule, with offices in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. Visit fmr.law for more information. Freaking Myers and Rule are advocates for working people and focus on employment law and serious injury. Welcome to episode 24 of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking. Today's special guest is Captain Jeff Butler, a highly accomplished law enforcement professional with the Cincinnati Police Department from 1986 until he retired in 2020. Captain Butler, welcome to Freaking Out About Work. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me here, Randy. Today we want to explore Captain Butler's career as a police officer, a police specialist, a sergeant, a lieutenant. And finally, a captain. But before we get into all of that, Captain Butler, please tell us, tell our listeners about your upbringing, where you grew up, your education, etc. Okay. Well, mine's pretty much a, a typical story for a lot of police families. Uh, I am part of now a fourth generation law enforcement family, um, born and raised in Cincinnati. Been here most of my life, except for a little bit of time away to college. West side or east side? Uh, I'm a west side, and your typical policeman from proudly a man of Elder High School. Okay. The Elder Mafia. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Very <laughs> proud to be a member of that. Altiora. But, uh, you know, from from there, um, law enforcement with my family, you know, it really started back after World War II. Um, my family, as I always, always say, we joke that uh, we have no skills. Um and we say that jokingly, but it, it started, you know, now fourth generation. You know, it started with my grandfather. Um, Tell us about your grandfather. How did he get into law enforcement? Well, my grandfather, uh, back during World War II, uh, was 30 or 31 years of age um, in Covington working. Um, had two kids, married, and he got drafted, you know, at the advanced age. Obviously, a lot of men mm-hmm. were drafted, you know, in, in that age because of the war effort and, and what was going on in the world. Um, he got drafted, and then during boot camp, they went around, and my grandfather was a, a big, larger man, a burly man, um, 
kind of what they used to call a man's man. Okay. And he was pointed at, and he was deemed he was going to be a military policeman. Okay. Um, so he spent the war effort, um, never never left the States, but they put him on uh, trains, and he was basically a policeman taking care of soldiers going to and from the war, uh, sometimes a little bit overserved, celebrating or, you know, preparing themselves to go. So he spent his entire, you know, time in the military as a policeman. Uh, when he came back, um, obviously looking for work afterwards, went to the city of Covington, applied, and was hired um, as a policeman for the city of Covington, Kentucky, uh, where he served a variety of roles. Um, his last time on the street, he was a three-wheel motorcycle officer. Um, during an event during that, unfortunately, uh, he had a wreck, uh, broke his back. So, Ouch. Yeah, it was, uh, been, of course, he had different medical things back in those days. He was still able to function, you know, and move around, a uh, big, strong man, thank God. Um, but then he began, he got into an administrative side uh, of Covington, and he helped develop their communication system, uh, which kind mm. of plays a little bit into my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and he retired after 20, 21 years of service as a uh, lieutenant with the Covington Police Department. Um, during that time, um, obviously, my father, who was the oldest of the, of the two two brothers, um, decided he wanted to be a policeman. Uh, following his father's footsteps. Following his footsteps. So that was the start of our, our, our generation. We had no law enforcement prior to that in our family. Uh, my grandfather told my dad uh, if he was going to get into law enforcement, go where he can make money, obviously better pay, and pointed across the river and said, go join Cincinnati. So, in, Did they live in Covington at the time or northern Kentucky? Northern Kentucky. Uh, my grandfather lived there over there his entire life. I believe at that time they were in Latonia, which is part of, obviously mm-hmm. part of the, the Covington area. Um, so dad and his new bride, which was my mom, uh, left the comforts of Kentucky, moved into Price Hill, right by St. William's Church. I uh, joined the police uh, cadet program, police recruit in 1961, and became official policeman in 1964. Was there a, you recall, I don't even know if you would know this, but was there a residency requirement back in those days? Like you had to be a resident of the city of Cincinnati to serve on the force? You had to be a resident. And I'll, I'll, resident, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, they well, they ultimately moved to St. Williams. They lived up in Clifton first and then moved. Uh, their next door neighbor in their two family was Lee May for the Cincinnati Reds. Okay. A little bit. Of, the big bopper yeah, from Birmingham. A little bit of useless trivia. And then ultimately, when I was born, we lived uh, across from St. Williams. And price here. But yeah, the city of Cincinnati uh, mandated that you live in the city of Cincinnati. And that lasted up until I think I was 14 or 15 years of age and it became a contract issue and they were able to, to move out. And we had residency within the city at that time. Still, we stayed. So nowadays you can be a Cincinnati police officer and not wor- live within the confines of the city of Cincinnati? Yeah, there was negotiated uh, two contracts ago. Um, you can live in northern Kentucky. Indiana, or any of the adjacent counties of Ohio, of, of Hamilton County. So they have officers that are living, you know, in Claremont County. We got them in Northern Kentucky. We got them living in Indiana. You know, by the contract, uh, they can live there. Now, we can't live, you know, say in Franklin County. You mm-hmm. know, that's just too far away to respond. But by contract, it allows them the adjacent counties they can live in. Yeah, basically almost like within 30, 45 minutes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some of them, depending on where you would live in Hamilton County, um, if you're in Northern Kentucky, you're actually closer to your place of work. So there's benefits to the city with that as well. How about your dad? How long did he serve? My father was 33 years uh, with the city of Cincinnati, uh, rose to the rank of assistant chief, 
um, back. They had a little bit different retirement times at that time. So he retired at age 48, uh, went across the river and became police chief of Kenton County, hmm. served there for six years, retired, and then he was called out of service again and hired as a uh, the vice president, uh, director of public safety for Northern Kentucky University um, after a lengthy investigation into some issues. They called him out of retirement and he was there for three years for Northern Kentucky University as their director of public safety police chief. And he retired again. So I, I assume when you were a young child, was he still working like a cop on the beat? He worked, yeah, growing up he had, he worked almost a variety of different jobs. Uh, my father moved up very fast within the organization. Uh, from 1964 to 75, he went from patrolman to sergeant to lieutenant to ultimately captain. And then from, it took from 75, there wasn't promotions after that for a long time. From 75 to 85 is when he made assistant chief. So there was a lot of turmoil, if you remember, in, in the 70s. Maybe a lot of you listeners don't, um, aren't old enough to remember it. But there was a big turnover in the 70s where a big large, large investigation in the police department create a lot of vacancies and promotional opportunities. My father advanced very quickly taking the promotional exams. So how was it to be a, a young boy with a father who was a Cincinnati police officer or a higher level rank? There was, it's, it was a mixed blessing. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up with, in the age like today, where we watch a lot of movies, seeing the superheroes. Um, I grew up watching some of the greatest superheroes in the world. Um, I had a front row seat to it. Um, I got to see some of the greatest things in the world. I got to see some of the saddest things growing up. So, you know, it can, I had a little bit of conditioning. Um, I saw a fraternity of men, primarily men at the time. Um, they rotated shifts every 28 days from first shift to second to third. So it was the same group usually staying together, but we did everything as a group. If there was a picnic, there was always a picnic. You know, it was everyone coming together. So... I knew kids from all over the, the city. Mm -hmm. We all had a common thing. It was our family. Um, a lot of those became policemen. I worked with them in my career. So it was very neat. Um, if there was something going on, um, like 1974, the tornadoes when it came through, my father was at the FBI Academy for three months of training. During that time, my mom's raising you know four kids. There was a fraternity policeman to make sure that we were okay until dad could get home. And took him a couple of days because of the tornado to get home. But, you know, because the tornadoes came through our neighborhood and, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the city. But we had people there to take care of us, you know, to make sure we were okay. So we always watched each other's back. So it was very, it was very satisfying to see that. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, you know, growing up as a teenager, um, you know, it's kind of growing up in your neighborhood. Your neighbor mom, the neighborhood moms always know what you did and told each other. Well, that, ex <laughs> that, that extended with policemen across everywhere. No matter what I did or where I was, it was always, oh, that's Butler's kid. So the network always got back. I would be go out on a Friday night even as a high school junior and senior, not doing anything bad, but Saturday morning, reading the paper, you know, my dad would already know what I had done or where I was. And it would have some lively, spirited conversations about my maturing into a man and some decisions I was making. So, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was all very well. Very good network of people kind of shaping me where I was going, keeping me within the confines of where you should be. So a great deal of camaraderie among Absolutely. the force, like a big, huge extended family. Absolutely. It was, it was always someone that if you needed something or needed advice or you needed a kick in the rear, 
mm-hmm. you know, that you got, you know, um, uh, they were always there for you. Now we're jumping ahead a little bit, but since you mentioned this, how has that changed? Do you think over the last almost half century now, you know, th- you're talking about the seventies, maybe early eighties. Mm-hmm. Now we're in 2021. You just retired, uh, six months ago or so, uh, had that kind of camaraderie among police officer families and the extended family still true today? It's there, but it's evolved. It's changed um, because of the times. Um, you know, back in those days, you know, um, if you worked an off-duty detail, which a lot of them do then, you know, like my dad had worked Frisia Security. You know, that was like $2 or two fifty an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, now you can work a detail, and they're well paid to, to do those. There's 40 to $42 an hour to do them. So a lot, it's become more of a, for a lot of people, an extending and increasing your, you know, point of living, you know, where, how you can live. Instead of a $100,000 house, you're now you're in a $300,000 house. Back in my dad's time was because the pay was so low scale for the police department. It was just maintaining your raising kids, you know, and stay at home moms type of thing. It's just maintaining that. So it's changed a little bit. Um, the camaraderie with the groups is still very good. Um, policemen, they talk about the thin blue line or the, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, we're, the policemen are still a family. It doesn't matter if you're Cincinnati, Green Township, Green Hills, policemen are policemen, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they've got some negative things to it as well, but it's there. It's just not because of the schedules, because of the different demands, because of social media, you might not have a hundred people at one spot. You may have 11, you might have 12. So it's, it's shrunk to a degree. But those still 11 or 12 people, if something happens to another policeman or another policeman's family that's away, they'll still rally around each other and they'll come help. I don't now, know if that makes sense. Yeah. Were there other children in your family, brothers, sisters? Yes. Um, growing up, I've got uh, an older sister. Um, she's kind of like the, uh, the outcast. Uh, she didn't get into law enforcement. Okay. Um, she's into uh, being a very proud mom of law enforcement. One of her sons is a uh, police sergeant with Kenton County. Um, but I've got two other brothers um, that are in law enforcement as we're growing up. One is a captain with Hamilton County Sheriff's Department. Uh, and the other one is now the chief um, of Fort Wright. Um, previously, he was, or I was joking, he can't keep a job uh, hmm. because the way Kentucky's thing is, he served as chief in a couple other places after moving himself up. He's on his third chief's job, but he's retired from those other jobs and moves to, to the next one. So okay. So he's, 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 the, he's the smart one. He's double dipping. He is. He is double dipping. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We've all double dipped in a, in a way. Right. That's one of the benefits of working in the public sector. I think sometimes have that opportunity. You have that opportunity, you know, but you also have the wear and tear on mm-hmm. your body. Yeah. Um, your body breaks down for what we do. Um, you know, there's, there's been knee replacements, you know, in the family, um, one brother has had three knee replacements. It's kind of tough to have three since you got two knees, but he's had three knee replacements because of the job. And when you're carrying around 50 to 60 extra pounds of equipment on your body, it breaks down. You know, I've got, you know, I got back soreness. I've been hit by a car, you know, I've been mm-hmm. shot at. So your body breaks down. So the retirement, you know, there is benefit, but there's a big trade off to quality of life as well. Correct. So obviously you have this great family background. But how did you get into law enforcement? What kind of training, education, things like that? Well, mine, mine is a little bit different. George, again, I, I grew up watching all these superheroes. Um, 
at the same time, I've got another set of superheroes I'm watching. My mother was a nurse. Hmm. So I got to watch the medical side for it. My uncle on her side was a nurse. He was one of the first male nurses around here. Um, Your uncle was? My uncle was on my mom's side. Um, you know, so, so I've had the medical side. My grandmother was a nurse. You know, so I got to see a lot of people in the medical field. Um, going through high school, um, my whole goal, my whole career path, um, and I'll give props to Dr. Kremchak now. I wanted to be Dr. Kremchak before Dr. Kremchak was Dr. Kremchak. Um, How did you know Dr. Kremchak? I didn't know him, uh, but I had watched, uh, going back to the, going to the Reds, if you remember Larry Starr, mm-hmm. uh, the Reds trainer. I wanted to get into athletic training, physical therapy, um, so I applied um, I received a full scholarship, um, ended up at Bowling Green State University. I had a couple other scholarships. Um, I was doing physical therapy with athletic training behind it on a pre-med track. Uh, my ultimate goal, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, physical therapy, and I wanted to work for the hometown Reds. That so this was my is goal. following your mother's footsteps. Yeah, that was the path that I was going. You know, that is what my, uh, when I left Elder and I, I decided on Bowling Green, that's where I went. Um, and that's freshman year where I was going to. So but at some point you came to a fork in the road and you went in another direction. Well, I went in the fork in the road because I, I thought I was a smart kid. Hmm. And I, I tell everybody, I thought I was too smart, too, too smart for my own good. Some people even say that today. Um, I tested out of the first two years of chemistry. So I started out my college career. My first class was chemistry 304. And it was by Dr. Patty Hurst, not the Famous Dr. Patty Hurst? You have to be the first elder guy to ever test out of two years like that. No, I was one of the slow ones. You know, we were better than the St. <laughs> X guys. That's but, right. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Hurst, she was one of the inventors of Teflon. And when you start with a doctor of, of chemistry that high a level, when you start up day one and you're confused and you're too proud not to, to do it. So my scholarship with the physical therapy part at that time they only take the next 10 of our group for the second year. After the first quarter, I was number 27. So they called me in and said, Jeff, you're not going to go to the physical therapy track next year. So I wasn't smart enough to, they said, to go respiratory therapy. And I didn't want anything part of respiratory therapy because I didn't know what it was. So I told them at that point, right before Christmas, that ah, I don't need the scholarship anymore. So then I came home and told my dad I had left my scholarship, which turned into a very interesting conversation. Sure, he wasn't real thrilled about that, but then... Well, you followed in his footsteps. Well, not quite, because it was about six, eight months later. We were driving. We had been out, and you know, in at that time, typical relationship with my father. I had a very good relationship, but it was still that I'm trying to become a man kind of stuff. But I had a very good relationship. My dad and three of my buddies were driving back. We had been out. It was an early afternoon, and my dad is driving, and he turns to one of my good friends and tells him that there's a police academy starting, and to take the test, and it take about a year for the process. Take the test, go through it, and you'll be a good policeman. And I jokingly looked at my father and said, huh. And I had no desire at this point to be a policeman. You know, I was up at UC. Here he was recommending it to one of your friends, but he had right. never recommended it to his son. Correct, correct. I was up, I had switched to UC, mm-hmm. uh, studying uh, up at UC. And uh, I said, well, Dad, maybe, maybe I'll take the test. And my dad, you got to know our sense of humor, he looked at me and said, you're not tough enough. Don't. Have someone else do it. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, "Where well, the heck with it? So I went on my own, didn't tell him. He was an assistant chief at the time, and this was his unit with all the people working for it. So I signed up. Every time I would talk to somebody in the process, I would swear them to secrecy, don't tell my dad. 
don't tell my dad, don't tell my dad. And I went through the entire process of getting everybody, because that's that camaraderie with everybody. Mm-hmm. And I explained the situation to them, and they all kept it quiet. Because, you know, at their level until the end, the chief and the assistant chiefs really never see the list of who's on it. Of the, there was 3,800 people that took the test when I took the test. So got to the very end, doing my home interviews. They're coming through, and, and the, my, uh, the policeman who did my background, uh, Billy Brooks, you know, he said, I'm going to have to tell your dad. You're, you're done. I said, okay. I said, can I go tell him? So I left, and I went down to his office after they did the, after I cleaned my apartment, got food, got rid of all the beer cans, made it perfectly clean to do the impression how great a, you know, college kid I was. Mm-hmm. And I went down and said, dad, I'm his part. And from there I became a policeman and I haven't looked back since. Is that still the way uh, people become police officers? They go through the police academy and then they have to test? Yeah. For the city of Cincinnati, it's a, it's a little bit different. We, we, excuse me, they um, have their own police academy. Okay. There's only the major cities in Ohio have their own um, academies. So for Cincinnati, you have to take a test. You take the test, and it is about a year process. Take a test, you score in a certain range, and then you move on to the next stage, next stage, next stage, and then you finally get accepted into the academy. And then we go through, it ranges from, right now it's 26 weeks to go through the academy. It's classroom, hands-on, the range we teach you to be a policeman. If you're successful in that, you graduate, and then you go into the field for 12 to 16 weeks with a coach, which is a seasoned officer, who's trained to train you, who kind of teaches you what to do before you get released on your own. Um, other places, there's individual academies. Some are private. Some are san- you know, They're all sanctioned by the state of Ohio, Opato, which is the training mm-hmm. academy. You can go through their classes, and, and they have shortened academies, which gives you the minimum the state wants, and then you're certified. And some people have their certifications, don't have jobs, and they apply and get hired because they're certified. Or you're sponsored by an agency who then, when you graduate, goes back to that agency for um, training. Cincinnati made the decision to, years ago, and it's paid off for the city, to really enhance the number of hours you have. Um, I've had, that was my last assignment. The last two and a half years, I was the academy commander and really got hands-on to see what and how we train. And when we say, oftentimes, we're the best trained agency in the world, we really are for for what they put in and the amount of money that is committed to training the officers. Do you have to be a, I assume you have to be a high school graduate to get into the police academy? 21 years of age and a high school graduate. You can sign up when you're 20. As long as you, gra- the time you graduate, that you're 21 years of age, able to carry a firearm in the state of Ohio. So if you can start the process before you're 21. But as long as when the class starts that you graduate at 21, you're fine. So I was trying to do the math in my head as you were talking. So if I go to the police academy tomorrow and I sign up to be a member of the class for the police academy, I guess, how long is that process before somebody actually gets certified as a police officer and actually can be a, a beat cop? From sign up to get in to the time you get through the academy and release on your own, it's probably about a two-year window before you're actually in a car. If all goes well, about two years from the time you put your ink that I want to be, that we select you, you go through the class, go through your training, that, oh, here's the keys to the car, go forth, my son, and and, be, and police. And the candidates all pay for this themselves, right, as if they're uh, in college or something. It's not, almost a substitute for college. Not in the city of Cincinnati, okay? You are paid in the city of Cincinnati while you're in the academy. You're paid, um, I believe it's 
about thirty six thousand a year now is what you're paid. A lot of people. Well, you have to test in order to get into to the get, academy. That's that first year. You're not getting anything. If you're in those other academies, some you're paying for that yourself, or someone's paying it for you. And you might, and you, sometimes you're paid by that agency. If you're sponsoring yourself, you're not getting paid. So you get out of the academy, and what's your first job in, in the city Cincinnati patrol. Police Department? You're, you're assigned as patrol, and in, in, in one of the five districts or six, if you count downtown, and you're in a police car with a seasoned veteran. Um, I was very fortunate that at the time my my coach uh, ultimately came rose the rank of captain. He's one of my mentors, uh, Captain Fred Ramsey, had 17 years on. So I got a very experienced guy with me. Had seen a lot of things that really taught me the basics of being a policeman. He had the patience to put up with a, a young 22-year-old kid, you know, full of fire and brimstone that was going to save the world that didn't know anything about the world that really set the foundation for where I was going to go and help me get through my 33 and a half years. But Officer Ramsey had 17 years of experience when you first got into the car with him? When I first got in the car to, with him, yeah. Had he been a, um, a what I call a beat cop? Had he been a beat cop for all the 17 years? He, for the majority so, of them. So you were lucky to get somebody that experienced. I was, I tell everybody, I was fortunate to have one of the, what I think at the time, one of the five best um, field training officers there were. There were a couple other guys that were on the shift um, that uh, I would also have loved to have had. Um, they had to go through a little screening process because my dad was an assistant chief. Truth be told, he kind of hand-selected, mm-hmm. you know, Freddie had, uh, my lieutenant, you know, I got the benefits of, at that point of being, you know, son of the kid. assistant chief. Yeah. I didn't know this was all going on, but behind the scenes, they were kind of picking and choosing who was best because the academy staff also knew my personality. So they were looking for the right fit, you know, and we try to do that to put the right person with the right one to train them. And Fred was the best one for me. So there's five districts plus downtown Cincinnati. Yes, sir. And they go by numbers, right? District one through district five. Right. What district were you in? I did every district in my career except three. Um, in a, in a variety except of District 3. Except District 3. That's I didn't want to go to 3 coming on because that's where I grew up. I didn't want to grow mm-hmm. up with a lot of people that I, you know, policing people I knew. Oh, so uh, that's like Price Hill area? Price Hill. Out, it's where Elder, the, the center of the universe is, Vincent and Regina Avenue. Yes. Um, I didn't want to, to be in the area because, um, you know, and wanted to learn other places. Um, and you know, so I ended up in District 4. Um, so, which, which is the district four is on Reading road and it's Avondale, but it extends from at the time from Pleasant Ridge and Carthage all the way down to actually Liberty street, downtown, mm-hmm. anything 71 going up. So uh, we were, our beat I learned on was Walnut Hills. That was 402. You, you mentioned officer Ramsey. Yes. What, what are some of the lessons you remember from officer Ramsey that kind of stick what? out in your mind? Well, the ones I can talk about on the air. Okay. Um, Fred was one of patience. Okay. Um, he is control yourself, understand where you're going and what you're doing before you get there. Basically have a plan. Um, I tried to follow that about 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I assume it, you tried it hundred percent, but you were that, successful 80% of the that's, time. That, that's fair. It's fair. Um, Fred was to treat people decent, know, know who is in your area. Um, one of the things that lessons, and, and Fred probably doesn't remember, but is he taught me something there, don't penalize someone for their plight or for being poor, okay? 
things happen in this world that people don't have control over, but treat the person as a human being. Talk to them. Um, I can tell you the time that I rode with Fred, I only saw him raise his voice one time. Um, and that's when I had my first wreck with a car. Okay. <laughs> and that was at me for, for, for that time because it would, should have been a lot worse. Um, How long were you with Officer Ramsey? Uh, there was 12 weeks that I rode in the car with him until I got released. Um, so every day I was watching him and each day it was, you know, gradual increase of responsibility. He would give me a little more responsibility. You know, the, the first week I wasn't allowed to drive, wasn't allowed to, you know, you know, you just watch. And then it was okay. Now, now we'll do tickets. You can learn to write tickets. And then now we'll talk to people. We'll do this. So it was a building block on foundations. The academy, when you leave the academy, they build the foundation of the house. Your FTO gives, if you think of building houses, lays the first level of bricks and starts the framing. FTO is? Field training officer. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, your career is just continuing to build those bricks, put the subflooring on, if you think of a building thing, and then kind of uh, build the whole house throughout your career. And at the end, you've got a house that's completed and you walk out the door. So you walk out the door, you leave Officer Ramsey. I left Officer Ramsey. And, and did, they, you, did, you, did you have a partner thereafter? It, uh, you do a little bit of both. Uh, they put you out on your own, and then they, the sergeants make lineup each day, depending on how many people we have working. Um, they have certain beats that have to be two-person, certain beats that are single-person, and some days you got extra people that, all right, let's put these two together and see what they can do. So it really depends on the sergeants on that shift who know your skills, who know your personality, that may see something that, you know, one person may be very good in traffic and one may be very good in, in criminal, but they're Mm -hmm. not strong enough in the next part. So you put them together, kind of try to let them build upon each other. And then sometimes you run into people that become, you know, friends for life. You know, you, you instantly click like two pieces of a puzzle mm -hmm. and you want to work together. And then you go to the bosses, hey, can we ride together? When a beat comes open and they would let you ride together. And is that still true today? I mean, we're talking yes, when you very first became on the force, but that's the way it still operates today. It, it still operates the way today. Yeah. So what do you think you enjoyed the most? about being a, a beat cop before you were promoted? It ultimately, I think what I enjoyed the most about a beat cop is after my transfer from District 4, when I ended up in District 1, which is downtown. Um, I ended up with a, a beat partner down there for a little over two, and the first time for a little over two and a half years. I rode with a guy by the name of Mark Yance. He became my partner. Um, you know, godfather to his daughter, um, we basically grew up, he came out of the class before mine. We ran 103, which is the West End, and then had to earn our way to, we, we wanted, you know, 102. We were working eight at night till four in the morning, you know, or one zebra two. You know, we wanted to, to run over the Rhine. Over the Rhine was the, the happening beat in the city. It was the busiest. And we rode those two and a half years together. This is in 1980s. This is the late 80s uh, to the early 90s. Was over the Rhine uh, viewed as uh, a dangerous area in those days? It, it it was the busiest one of the one of the busiest places in the city. Very condensed, um, but you had a lot of good things that were going on there as well. Mm -hmm. um, you could get in any one night. You could see you'd have violence to car chases, to drugs, to but on the other side you would see you know good people coming through, you know cutting through the city, you know so you'd run into the good and bad. But there was always something going on. It wasn't time to, you know, just sit back and relax. It was that the day went quick. 
And that's what you wanted. That's yeah. Well, you're young, you know, you're young and you want it all. You want to see it all. And that's, it was great. And I, we worked with great people on our shift, great bosses, great supervisors. You know, that's kind of when I ran into people that this is who I want to be like, is, you know, as you grow in your career, you know, so it became an, from those early superstars or superheroes that I saw growing up. I had a taste of them when I, I kind of came out and saw more. And then I became in the group and started seeing more. So as you, as you go through your career, you find five, six, seven people as you're young and you pick apart. I like that. That's what I want part of me. So you start building yourself. And you find two or three things when you find someone is real good and you start building more and more about yourself. And that's what I was doing down there. You know, I, I ran in again, the people that kind of molded who I ultimately became, you know, you, whether it's your moral structure and your values are always there, but how they did things, how they treated people, how they learned about things, how they either taught people, shared their experiences or kind of push in a direction, you know, and sometimes Kind of kicked you in the butt too, you know. Now, you were married at the time. I didn't get married until later in my career. I got married uh, in 1998. How about just a sense of fear? You know, nowadays, I think there's a lot of spouses that watch their uh, their spouse go out the door, particularly beat cops, and they worry about their safety. What do you think your mom or dad? were worrying about your safety or did they just assume that things would work out okay? Um, spouses and families, I'll tell you, worried every day back when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. They still do the same today. Mm -hmm. The difference is the social media and the availability to see what was going on. Um, the sadness of what was going on is I grew up and Cincinnati in the 70s went through a lot of officers being killed in the line of duty. Okay, I witnessed the I witnessed mm -hmm. that, you know, firsthand the, the aftermath. I watched my mom growing up, you know, when that would happen. And, you know, unfortunately my father had supervision of, of a few and I watched the impact on my dad because it's something that you carry, but there wasn't the social media. You'd read the Enquirer and maybe channel nine, Al Shadokai, they have a story on it, but it wasn't the national news that you knew every day. Each day you look at Facebook and there's something that comes apart. Um, when I came on the job, my first week on the street, my very first week on the street, Cliff George was killed. So I had that impact early on. Um, the thing I carry each day, I still carried on then. Uh, Sonny Kim was, mm -hmm. I say, was mine. Three minutes before he was killed, him and I were talking. Mm. Um, each night, I that's still, a bracelet you're wearing. That's a bracelet. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You know, I still carry. I still pray at night for that one. And it, there's, I know there's nothing I could have done. Could have done. But it's also something that when you go through it, it's, and it sounds cliche, but as his captain and his friend, it's something that, you know, the what ifs, because I can replay it. I remember our conversation mm -hmm. and we go through, and after it happened, I talked about the fraternity of the, of the superheroes and the people. There, there was captains that, former retired captains have been through it, not just my dad, but other people that reached out to me and said, Junior, this is what you're gonna experience. And there were things that happened in the city at that time that still leave a little distaste to me. And I'll leave that, you know, for me. But they were there, my support ring for that, because I had responsibilities that I had to take care of. But while the city was mourning what happened to Sonny, and, you know, there's a lot of moving parts that was going on. But it's something that that fear, as you're going back to your thing, 
with, with police families, there's always the worry. The difference is the social media. The good part is also with the social media is now it, it connects a lot of people. Um, you have very wonderful people that are involved, new programs that help police. Um, I can use Linda Pope, if you remember Danny Pope, um, who's killed on duty with Ron Jeter. Linda Pope is a national advocate with cops. Mm-hmm. She's helped transform the survivors to help that and also change legislation, not only help survivors, but bring awareness. You know. well, and you see officers killed in the line of duty. How do you keep going as an officer? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you prevent that fear from kind of overtaking you and just wanting to quit? Police officers, again, I'm biased, are a very special breed. Um, the normal person, and I'll go back to some of the recent stuff you've watched on TV. There's been shots fired incidents, and you've watched everybody, 99% of the people run away from a man with a gun. Who are the people that are running towards it? It's the policeman. Even though they've been marginalized, been abused, it's that personality, that commitment to public service. Um, it's that not on my watch. Not on my watch tonight is something going to happen to you. And it takes a kind of special person to do that. Um, there's jobs that people can have that'll pay them a lot more money. There's mm-hmm. jobs that, you know, um, may give them more financial freedom, more safety, but it won't give them fulfillment. And it, and for people that aren't in it, it it's tough to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does that fulfill you? I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about people finding dignity in whatever they do, whether they're a grave digger, uh, whether they're a TV studio head, whatever. People try to find dignity in their work. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about. Yeah, it is. It's, I tell everybody, 98% of my time on this job, greatest thing in the world, and I probably would have paid to, to do it. I've been experiencing most people in their lives I never have. 1%, I wouldn't worse, wish on my worst enemy. Um, 1%, it's uh, the world should never see. Um, so when you go through that, it's the little things that you get, and it's not what you expect it to be. It's not that shining moment where, you know, I rush through the door uh, when something bad happens. You know, there's incidents of heroic efforts by policemen. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about it. I mean, I'll tell you, like the, the fifth, third incident we had, mm-hmm. not one of those policemen want to talk about that because that's they don't want that. Right. It's, well, it's like the people that went to war in right. World War II came home and never talked about it. Right. My father, you know, served in World War II, never wanted to talk about it. Right. Because that's that's not what you're doing it for. What it goes back is that one moment. That one moment when you made a little difference in someone's life, whether it's getting someone out of a bad situation or it's when that person's on that one last, that worst moment of their life and you're the person that gets them, that it might be something simple. Like I watch policemen all the time that'll, that just drop food off for people. They drop food off and that person's down on their luck. Um, I watched a policeman when I was a young policeman. It's going to sound like a corny story but their car broke down on the highway with a boat on the back and they weren't from Cincinnati. They didn't have any money. They had a little bit of money left. It was a beat up boat. They were from Dayton. Mm-hmm. I watched a policeman go to the district, get his truck to these complete strangers, gave them his truck to tow their boat home while he got their car fixed. He didn't have to do that. That was Sergeant Steve Lang. I'll give him his name onto it. He didn't look for accolades on, but it's the kind of man he was. Those people then came back by his truck back and said, thank you. I mean, they're, 
he would still get in contact with people who were cut years later, just say thank you. And that was that domino effect of how many good things did they say in the rest of their life about policemen from a complete stranger. People do that all the time. Um, yeah, you know, I say all the time, you know, when I was doing employment law, I say all the time, 99% of supervisors, 99% of managers, 99% probably of kind of corporate America is okay. It's the one bad apple that spoils the broth. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the thin blue line, which mm -hmm. is the fraternity of police officers to support each other. How about the recent criticism of the thin blue line in the sense that there's some controversy that sometimes police officers are not willing to call out the bad cops? Well, I will tell you in my experience, policemen are the harshest critics of the true bad cops. If you've got a bad police officer, they don't want a jury of police officers. Police officers report bad police officers. And the city of Cincinnati does a great job of the, the men and women here. I can speak from experience. They report when they see something bad. They push it when they see something bad. They're willing to do it. And the police chiefs I've worked for, they've been very good about going after and pushing them. Now, there's contract issues sometimes that mm -hmm. you know, get into play. That's absent that. Um, some of the stuff across the nation, I can tell you that men and women that I'm close to, men and women that I'm not close to, that I've been in conversations with, we all call out the bad stuff. The problem that the thin blue line has is we know, because of experience, we know what's good, what's bad. We recognize where the deficiencies are. Sometimes the deficiencies aren't what the policeman did. It's the deficiencies of what led to it. Okay, and I talk about that foundation. It's decisions that may have been made three or four years ago or 20 years ago that now all of a sudden the politicians or the administrators put their hands back and say no, and it becomes a very simple scapegoat to name that police officer for decisions they made. Well, you know, we were talking a little bit before we came on the uh, podcast today about mental health. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that to our listeners, how at one time there were mental health specialists involved in treating people with mental health issues. Correct. And how it changed to the police yeah, it, being given that responsibility. Yeah, we're, we're talking, we're going back, and this is personal experience back when I came on in 86, about decisions that are made at the politician level, and it really comes down to a lot of issues on budget, and where can you put services to save money? Well, the police department is always, well, they're 24 hours a day, they can handle it. Let's give it to the police. And they've done that over and over. Back in 1986, when I came on, you had a, uh, services, some at behavioral, called it Longview, was open. Roman was open. And they These all, are all mental health me facilities. Me mental health facilities. Roman's was up, burn it, by Martin Luther King. And what would happen is police officers at the time, we worked with them if we had a run for not a, a, a super violent mental health uh, patient. But some sort of emotional Emotional thing. Some, yeah, off their medications, had something, mm -hmm. you know— traumatic issue, you know, you don't know what it was, we would take that and we would either take them to, instead of going right to University Hospital for um, a psych evaluation hold, we would be able to go to Romans or to Summit who had trained professionals that would evaluate them. And it may be something as simple as getting them back on a medication routine, talking to them, you know, more of a, a psychologist part, and then returning them back into their environment. But from that, there was also follow-up. You had mental health professionals, and if we took someone home, and I'll go to, I'll use like my old beat, 
1223 Republic. It was low-income housing, but if we had someone from there that had a mental health issue, that had some things, maybe they went to Romans, and they may were home maybe six hours later, maybe a day later. But you would take them to a mental we, health facility. We, we would take them there. And then, but those facilities would then also have a caseworker, they call them social workers then, would then go back, follow up with the person. They'd go visit them, you know, and they'd come and say, hey, we're going to 1223 Republic, we're going to be here. And they would follow up with whoever the person was to make sure medications were stabilized. So how has that changed? Or when did it change and why? Late 80s, early 90s became budget issues within whether it's the city, the county, or the state. Funding went away for all that. They leveled the buildings. They took them away for building whatever reasons, well beyond my understanding at the time. But they took that role. They gave it to police departments with no training, uh, maybe four hours of this is how you deal with someone who's in a, a medical in a crisis of some sort. sort. And now you're a mental health expert. And what that did is really overloaded the system and responsibilities on policing. And we talk about with that of police reforms that are coming on now. We all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think if we took the people with police reform and police department, put them in the same room. And they actually same, talk to each other. And they talk to each other. You could see they want the same thing because we evolve. We evolved a little bit from them by, unfortunately, by crisis, some of the interactions locally and nationally but we're still not talking the same thing. And I actually have some conversations with my friends. They, they say, Jeff, you're changing. I say, I've never changed, but I got perspective from changing because we don't, we, we haven't changed some of our training. And when you hear the reform people saying like mental health, people with mental health crisis and police response, if you have a person and an understanding of it, and, and I don't consider myself an expert, but I have an understanding of it, of say developmental disability, if you're in a crisis, you may use things of stemming, bright lights bother you, loud noises bother you, yelling. You're in a crisis, and then you want to revert to home, even if you have a, a weapon. You may not realize you have a weapon. That may be your coping mechanism. So when you call the police, you call 911, you get the basic information, but we don't train people to really get enough. It's the, the get the information in and then try to get it out through a radio system to the police officers and how the police officers respond, say, with a man with a knife. Siren, lights, loud vocal commands, guns, to a person who's in crisis, and then you've got these two worlds that are colliding. And you're saying that just exacerbates the situation. It does. So, and But sometimes you have to, in defense of the police, sometimes you have to defend because some of the... Sure. But where, where is the training? I will tell you the training on that. Right now, it's encompassing about 16-hour training that you get. That may be 10 years old. We were trying to develop that when I was there. The city, um, I would tell you, wrote a grant. We worked on a grant when I was there, and I believe the city just got a grant to expand it, but it's very limited. So the police reform folks want that increased. They talk about let's have mental health workers respond with police inside of police. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Mental health, you still need the police response to that, but you need the whole thing to work. If you look back, 30 years ago, that's kind of what we had. Hmm. Where's it come? It's the money, it's training, it's understanding. It's taking an overloaded police system who's... Because 30 years ago, you had Rollman, you had... Summit View. What was you see? Then called Longview, right? Um, they changed and the name to Summit View. But Summit Longview View, right. And that was the long term, but there was things hmm. that we, we had partners in the, in the, in the process 
that would help us along with UC. And for budgetary reasons or whatever, the partners kind of disappeared. Right. And it was left to the police officers. Let's give it to the police. And now we're kind of coming full circle. Hopefully the academy is going to get more training for the police officers. But, you know, back when you were at the police academy, there was no mental health training, I don't uh, imagine. I think we had at the time, I'd, I've got my service records, but I think we may have had like eight hours on it. Right. And even then through our career, it was probably another 10 years mm -hmm. before another incident required us to have another training to train the entire police department to certify us as mental health response teams. And that was only like a quarter of the police department got that certification. Okay. Now you got promoted to police specialist, lieutenant, sergeant, captain. Yes, sir. But one thing that interests me is at some point in your career, you were an undercover. I was. Now, any any I, good stories from when you were an under... So first of all, tell us what an undercover cop is. How did you become one? And what does that all involve? Well, early in my career, um, the city of Cincinnati formed what was called the street corner unit. Uh, it was the... I was street corner two. Street corner one was basically for was designed as a short-term task force to really look at street corner drug sales. It was very effective. That was, and then they kind of went through that and moved it right back, you know, into Norm Patrol. And then right about 1989, um, under the leadership of Colonel Joe Staff, he was another one of those superheroes that I kind of grew up watching. Okay. And Joe Chief, Staff. Joe Staff. And Chief Larry Whalen at the time, they formed Street Corner 2. Um, I was a young policeman. And they kind of had a mix of veterans and younger policemen for the different looks. There was 25 of us that were created this temporary unit that became permanent. So you got uh, to grow out your hair and... I had longer, bushy hair, a little beard. Um, I did a little bit of crazy things. Um, some of the most fun and exciting time. I mean, I did that for about two years. Um, I went from being, and I joke, I'm still not totally grown out of it. I was a, a, people don't laugh at me. I was a preppy when I went in. I used to wear two... Two shirts, had the neat hair and everything, and I grew out. I'm a t-shirt and jean guy and haven't really adjusted from it since. Um, but, you know, it, we were, we were, there was that excitement that we were going through. Um, I did some, some of the greatest people in the world I worked with. Um, you know, gimmicks I had for a very short time. I bought a snake. I, <laughs> I had a six foot python I walked around because I couldn't buy drugs anywhere until I got the snake. And then so I, what part of town were you in when you had the snake? We were citywide. You know, he only came out with the special occasions, you know, just when I would have to buy. Um, I had other times, you know, that we would go into bars, you know, different bars, whether it was a young or an old bar, you know, place to try to, to buy the drugs. And that was right as when the crack epidemic um, hit Cincinnati. Um, and it was like overnight how it hit Cincinnati. Um, you know, um, I lost a bet in that. Um you know, who's one of the, the greatest undercover cops I worked with. Um, actually bought drugs in church. You know, I told him he could never do that, and he was able to facilitate that, and so I lost. Um, but How it, many but, years did you do the undercover work? As the officer, I did two years of it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go back for um, about a year and a half as a supervisor, as a sergeant in the unit later in my career. And then ultimately, when I made captain, I went back, and I had about a year and a half uh, almost two years, I was the captain over the unit, the vice, I had the vice squad. So I've all told about six years that I've had that, but only one that I was really grubby and doing all the, the wild and crazy stuff. So um, it was exciting. It, it was, was basically different. to try to get uh, uh, 
drug. It was, uh, we focused on the, the street level drug sales and the violence that came with it. Uh, um, you could see that it was coming, but it was also, and I will say now, some of the misguided, um, as far as where the law, they talk about the difference in laws, mm-hmm. you know, three rocks of crack cocaine could get you locked up for 15 years compared to the change today. So that, you know, so there is some, but at the time that was the law and that's what we were told to go. Oh yeah. That was a war on drugs. Right. That's I mean, when, that's when, you know, and there was a lot of violence associated with it. If you look before we started street corner, I mean, the homicides in Cincinnati were coming up in the heyday. We dropped it to, I think in 1996 or seven, I mean, homicides dropped in 28 in the city, which is unheard of. I think this year they approached, or 20 or 2020, it was almost 100. So we had an impact, but you know, mm-hmm. but there was an conversely, there was an impact in some of the community relations and stuff that we had. We don't want to so, reveal too many secrets on the podcast, but is there still a street corner unit? Street corner, it's it's formed in the different name. Street corner itself has been folded into to other. But there's still there's undercover still, cops out there. Yeah, they're still undercover cops. What do they look like? Could look like you, me. Could like anything. It's all, it's all different. So you you might not think there's a cop in the area, but there might be a cop. Oh, in the there area. were, there, there's always someone around. Now, at some point, you became, and I know we're running out of time on the on the episode, um, and we could talk all day and night about all this. It's really fun, but you got a supervisory role at some point. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Right. Talk about the challenges of supervising police officers. It, it becomes a little bit of a maturing role. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go to sergeant, you still think that you're part of the guys. And that's really what one of your roles is as you're maturing to kind of control them a little bit. So what is the level? You go from a, a police officer. Right. And you became a police specialist. Yeah, specialist is an in-between thing. That's for the guys that don't want to be supervisors. You get more pay, a little more responsibility. But you're still a police officer. And then you become a lieutenant. Uh, sergeant. I'm sorry, sergeant. sergeant. And then you become a lieutenant. And, and then captain. And you're saying when you're a sergeant, you're still kind of part you're, of the, you're, the boys. You're really the and back, girls. You're the backbone of the organization. A good sergeant makes a success of the, either the unit or the district or wherever you're working because you kind of make sure all the pieces work in place. Two good sergeants are worth more than one good, one good captain. I'll tell you that. Okay. Now, I mean, and you eventually became a captain. I've, oh, yes. I became a captain. So I acknowledge that. Because you, you, you became a sergeant, then you became a lieutenant, then you became a captain. Correct. If, if you think of the rank structure for, you're familiar with baseball. If you, if you think the sergeants, lieutenant, and captains, your sergeants are your coaching or your coaches. They're on the first baseline or the hitting coach, or the bullpen coach. Your lieutenants are the manager. They're in the dugout calling the plays. Captain's the front office guy that's up there. And then when you go to the assistant chiefs and you go to the, the chief, they're the guys that are player personnel. They're the VPs or the owners. They're the, they're so making Nick the crawl, the GM of the Reds. He would be the equivalent of a captain. Um, now Nick crawl would be up there with either the assistant chiefs or the chief. You know, they'd be up making those player personnel decisions. Okay. Um, you know, the captain, you know, again, you're, you're sitting up a little bit higher up there. You're making, you know, you're, you're the assistant VP. Player personnel, you're helping make the trades, you know, but you're not you're not making that final decision. You're running your little area. You know, I might be the director of scouting and say, This is who we want to draft, this is who we want, but then ultimately that big decision goes when it wants to And what's up. the level beyond captain? 
That's assistant chief, lieutenant colonel. And then eventually and then, chief. And then the chief. And I know one of the chiefs that you worked for over the years that you have some respect for that's also an elder grad, I believe, yes. is Chief Stryker. Chief Tommy Stryker, yes. How about some lessons you learned from Chief Stryker or things that made you admire uh, Chief Stryker? Because he was chief for a long time. Yeah, chief Stryker and I had, and I say it, and him and I both agree to it, It's at times it was a love-hate relationship. Um, and I mean that in a very respectful way. Um, I would walk into the room and I would get my butt handed to me. And sometimes I didn't know what it was for. I was like, it was a beautiful day out and I don't know what happened. Um, but he was able to see where I was and help put me on my track of where I was, um, if that makes sense. You know, when I made sergeant, you know, he was my captain. Um, he swore me in to sergeant, specialist and sergeant, he swore me in as. But he told me, made sergeant, he said, you're going to planning, inspections, and the academy. He said, I said, I'm street cop. He said, no, you're not. This is where you're going to go. He said, because if you want to run the police department and you want to rise up, you need to have perspective of support. You need to understand how the system works, what makes the engine run. And he was very good about laying things out. Now, he would give me rewards, and I'll say rewards. I got to go to back to street corner. You know, I, I went to, to Vice. So there was always, as my development went further, he would do it. But he would also challenge me. When I made captain, we didn't have someone in charge of the IT department. And all of a sudden, an IT, the IT was created for a captain. Only thing I knew how to do was search the internet. <laughs> but it was a challenge. I came out of there understanding it. And then I got the communications part, and I understood that. So the chief, what he did, he was developing me and preparing me to be a chief or assistant chief or be a well-rounded captain. Um, it was kind of not just with me, but there was a lot of people. Who did it. He was a visionary of, of wouldn't let you be stagnant in your role. Um, he was also someone I could go talk to. Um, I had, there was different times in my life where I had ups and downs and crises mm -hmm. that I, I could go talk to him where I couldn't talk to my dad or some of the other guys. He was a little close to my age. He was one of the people that I, I remember him when he was a cadet. I was a little kid on the softball team, so I could see him. He, well, was, he had an open door. He had an open door. You know, I didn't always get the answer I wanted. Mm -hmm. I also didn't get the answer the way I wanted. I, you know, and he was very good about, he would also put a, a boot on my backside. A little tough love. Oh, yeah, it was. I didn't understand it at times, mm -hmm. um, but he was someone that kind of got it, and he got it for me. And I'll say that I probably wouldn't have been as successful. I, I won't say probably. I wouldn't have been successful in my career to get to where I was without what he had done when I was there. You know, we talked about like Fred Ramsey early on, mm -hmm. got me through the early parts. Again, right. Tom, Tom Stryker got through the next part, and then probably the, the last part of it that was on the department would have been Jim Craig. Those are the three, the big ones as far as the working way that it goes. On the outside of it, there were guys, you know, like Sergeant Paul Vogelpohl was one that, you know, kind of walked me through there. Walt McAlpin, who was an assistant chief. But those three were the ones that really drove me to make me where I, when I walked out the door. How about Scotty Albert? Scotty Albert's one of the funniest and best guys I've ever worked for. Or not worked for, worked with. And what kind of things did you learn from Craig? Jim Craig taught me leadership. Um, Jim Craig taught me a way, he was a, I would say an outsider came in as a sister, as a police chief. Um, he was the first outsider to come in, you know, so he had to find a way to make it work for him. He wasn't here long enough, um, 
He's doing a great job in Detroit. But him and I had a lot of good, straightforward conversations. He wasn't afraid to tell me, Jeff, and I was a captain, been a captain for quite some time, and I think eight years by the time he got here. said, these are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. This is where you where you fail. This is where you succeed. But he would say, these are what I need from you, and I'm going to use your strengths. And he gave me opportunities that I hadn't had. Um, you know, he gave me the opportunity for District 2 as the commander out there. Mm-hmm. And that was almost three years of the best three of my career. Um, still talk to him occasionally. Still text him when they, they do stuff in Detroit. Still occasionally give him heck because he's got a great real-time crime program up there that he took my ideas up there. <laughs> well, Jeff, the sad but true story is that is all all the time we have today. I, I As I frequently say in these episodes, I wish we had more time. Uh, would you be willing to come back sometime? Anytime you need me, sir. Well, this has been an educational experience for me, and I hope for all of our listeners. Uh, thank you, Captain Butler, for joining us today. I wish you well in your future endeavors, your retirement. And on behalf of the citizens of the great city of Cincinnati, thank you for your 34 years of service. Well, thank you. And I'd like to close uh, thanking the city of Cincinnati, the citizens there, for giving the opportunity to, to work with them. Hopefully I left it a little better than when I started. Best city on the planet. Thank you. I'd agree. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com and Freaking Out About is all one word. Thank you, everyone.